0: Hi there, Faultline listeners. This is Ryan Haas, one of the writers and producers of the series Dying for a Fight. Back in November, we brought you what we thought might be the last episode in this series that looked at the killing of Sean Kellyer. Sean was an anti-fascist who was killed in 2019, and his family and friends believe police hated his politics so much that they wouldn't solve his murder. We're back in your podcast feed because we have a major update on the case. After nearly two and a half years of relentless pressure from Sean's family, friends, and journalists, including this podcast, Portland police finally made an arrest in August of 2022. With that arrest, new information has come to light. For instance, we now know police had video of Sean's killing since 2019. For years, Sean's friends and family have said this case hasn't been solved because the police don't want to solve it and the new information we have makes it harder to understand why making an arrest took this long. The timing of the arrest is also odd. In this episode, we're going to try to make sense of it all.
1: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, And this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies.
0: The host for Dying for a Fight, Sergio Almos, is currently in Ukraine doing reporting, so I'm joined by one of the show's producers, Jonathan Levinson. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Ryan. So we got this astounding news in August of 2022 with no warning that Portland police had finally apprehended one of the men they believe was involved in Sean Kellyer's killing. I want to talk with you in a minute about how all of that went down. But before we do that, I thought it might be helpful to recap a bit of what law enforcement told us as we were reporting this series, because this new information puts those interviews in a pretty fresh light.
1: Yeah, when we were reporting the series, one of the biggest questions we tried repeatedly to get an answer to was, why hadn't police made an arrest when the evidence seemed pretty clear? As a reminder,
0: the SUV that was essentially the murder weapon was left behind at the scene. That would give police the plates, the owner's info, and any fingerprints or other identifying clues that might have been in the vehicle itself. We also learned during our reporting that police had collected at least some surveillance footage nearby. Anti-fascists had said police had helpful video, and we recently learned that police likely collected that very early in the investigation, which we will talk about a little bit later. Overall, it's just a very hefty pile of evidence.
1: Right, and so we asked all kinds of people in law enforcement what the deal was. Here's a clip of the then head of Portland's police detectives, Commander Jeff Bell.
2: Here's part of the issue. You know, with this case, I guarantee you there is someone, and maybe more than someone, who, who knows who did this. Um, they have not come forward. and And that is, unfortunately, we still rely on Beyond just video surveillance, beyond physical evidence, beyond what we get out at the scene, we still rely on on people to tell us what they saw and what
1: they heard. And I have to point out here that this is something we heard many times as we were asking people questions about this case. Police and other law enforcement repeatedly said there were aspects of this case that just made it more complicated than it appeared. And they said they needed more witnesses to come forward to make an arrest. Here's how the local prosecutor, Mike Schmidt, put it when we asked him what it would take to charge someone in a case like Sean's. Well, the answer, (laughs) like most law school uh, exams, is it depends, right? Uh, It depends on what other collateral evidence we have that could help us prove what we need to prove in in the court. Our best case scenario is that if somebody has information and they share that with us, they're willing to put their name behind it.
0: So what's not being said here by law enforcement is that anti-fascists don't necessarily trust them or believe in the prison
1: system. And yet police are asking for that trust. Uh, Again, here's how Bell put
2: it. I mean, in terms of homicide investigations, I want folks to trust that we have the best interest of the investigation at heart. And what that means is we are trying to find answers for loved ones, for those who are left behind. And there are some key pieces of this investigation that we're talking about here that make it not nearly as simple as it appears.
1: This idea that it's not nearly as simple as it appears is something police repeatedly told us. And they told Laura, too.
0: When we first started investigating, Laura Kellyer told us she knew who killed Sean. She even told us she believed police had video evidence. She said anti-fascist researchers were able to use information from that night to link the vehicle to two men in 2019. We didn't name anyone during the podcast because no one had been charged. But just recently, on August 4th, police arrested Christopher Knipe as the alleged driver of the car that killed Sean. This is roughly what Laura had told us had happened, meaning that contrary to the police argument of the case not being as simple as it seems, Laura's information appears to have been right
1: all along. That arrest has been massive news here in Portland, and it's given us some new information, even though there's still a lot we don't know about this case.
0: You know, we don't have a lot of details into what happened or why that arrest happened, but one way we can see a window into that is law enforcement put out the probable cause affidavit, uh, which is basically their reasoning and process for making this arrest. Um, I don't know if you can maybe talk us through a little bit of what that document says.
1: So the document confirmed a lot of our previous reporting and what we had been told. Uh, We know that a car registered to one of Christopher Knight's relatives was left at the scene. Uh, We know that a man who had been living in a tent nearby, heard multiple gunshots. This is all stuff that we had been told earlier. Mm-hmm. Police confirmed to us that they had spoken to Kellyer's two friends who were there. That's Switch and Lucky, who we heard from in the podcast. And they also corroborated a lot of what Switch and Lucky told us, mm-hmm. that, that the three were walking back to their car when a group of other, another group of three guys verbally accosted them, is what the affidavit says.
0: It names them in the affidavit as K'Nipe, Scott Duncan, and Noah Cottle. Laura had previously named Knipe and Duncan to us, and we had tried to contact them many times through many different methods during the podcast, but they did not respond. So, according to Knipe's affidavit, those three got into Knipe's car that night. They then allegedly drove off, turned around, and accelerated back towards Sean, Switch, and Lucky. Uh, The affidavit says that the vehicle drove up onto the sidewalk and ran over Sean. Jonathan, what is alleged to have happened
1: after that? Lucky, who we heard from, was armed that night. Uh, He fired uh, into Knipe's car to prevent him from backing up again over Sean. This is all stuff we'd heard. This is all stuff that was confirmed (laughs) in the affidavit.
0: One thing that was not necessarily included in this probable cause affidavit, but was a factor here in this arrest, was Morgan Kenoki. Listeners may remember in episode eight, we had uncovered her as a new witness in this case who police had never spoken to.
1: Yeah, she was a former co-worker uh, and friend of Knipe's. And in a, just a really bizarre coincidence, she had also attended protests and knew Sean. She told Sergio, uh, the host of the podcast, that she suspected Knipe was involved from from the night of the murder. But police had never spoken to her, uh, and we talked to her in 2021.
0: Kanoki told us that she saw news reports that Sean was killed and saw on TV that it looked like Kanipe's vehicle was involved. At work when she asked Christopher Kanipe about it, he told her he was at a concert near where Sean was killed that night, but had driven home before the killing happened. Kenipe also told Morgan Kenoki his car was stolen and that whoever stole it must have driven back to that same area as the concert and used it in the attack on Sean. Needless to say, Kanoki didn't buy that story. Here's what she told us.
1: I was suspicious simply because I knew how hard it would be to steal that vehicle. What the pure likelihood was that he was there and then wasn't, and then an hour later his car was involved in an incident that might have killed my friend. Um, At that point, I was very on my guard. It just doesn't make sense to me.
0: Kenoki told us that while she didn't go to the police in 2019, she would talk to officers if they reached out to her. That episode aired in November of 2021, and it wasn't until July of 2022 that police did ask to speak to her.
1: Portland police have declined most questions about this case, saying, you know, it's an ongoing investigation. But we know the DA doesn't like to rely solely on video. And we heard a lot during the show that police wanted more witness statements to make an arrest. So Kanoki's recounting of events is clearly that.
0: Yeah, her story did offer that new evidence police said they needed. But because of Knipe's arrest, we also learned just how much evidence they have had for years. And it's kind of surprising just how much information they seemed to have had without making an arrest. And maybe you can take us through some more of what we know from that affidavit and some of those additional details about the arrest and the timeline
1: around how that arrest played out. A big thing we now know for sure is that police did have video evidence. It says there is surveillance video of Christopher Knipe, Scott Duncan, and a man named Noah Cottle together at the nearby Bossa Nova ballroom. There's also a video of the actual incident. The video shows Knipe's SUV driving away from Kellyer, Switch, and Lucky, and then abruptly stops about half a block away, turns around, and accelerates back towards them. This is all on video. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows two people carry a body across the street in that matches what Switch and Lucky told us, that they carried Sean to Lucky's car and then drove him to the hospital. hmm The affidavit also says that, you know, the roads were open in other directions, right? And so that means that Knipe Can- could have driven away from the scene in any direction he wanted to. A quote from the affidavit says, Detective Broughton, that's the detective on the case, yeah. was unable to locate any objective evidence that would justify why the SUV turned back around after driving away from the intersection. Detective Broughton also was unable to locate any objective evidence to justify why the SUV drove straight at Kellyer after the U-turn.
0: Yeah, so that's basically saying, in layman's terms, because that's a little jargony, it's basically saying, Detective Scott Broughton looks at this video, he sees Knipe uh, after uh, they have this altercation with Sean, Switch, and Lucky. He sees Knipe and these other guys get in this car, and it makes no sense why they turn around and come back and
1: drive towards them. It's almost like they're laying out the the intent, that mm-hmm. there's no other justification other than doing it intentionally.
0: Right, right. They, these guys weren't in the street and like an accident happened. It, it seems intentional, according to
1: this video. Right. The surveillance video sounds like clear evidence that would have pointed police toward Knipe as a suspect. But they didn't make an arrest until recently. Laura says this is because of the bias that Portland police officers have toward Sean and other anti-fascists. Let's go over the timeline and order of events leading up to the arrest, because that seems to lend some credence to that accusation. Police interviewed K'Nipe June 28th, 2022. They went and interviewed K'Nipe again, the detectives, Mm -hmm. and he told them the same story, that his car had been stolen. The affidavit says detectives then presented him with information that contradicts his story.
0: And we should say, it doesn't say what that information is. Presumably, it's this video or, you know, either something Kenoki said in the podcast. We're not certain there.
1: Right. To which Knipe responded, I'd better come clean. They say that uh, police said he he then admitted to, quote, being the person who drove the car that struck and killed Kellier. Right. knipe told the police that he was in the car alone and didn't know Duncan. Which is
0: bizarre, right? Like, we know... From our reporting, there seem to be a lot of connections between Kanipe and Duncan. They live together at the same address, so it it seems bizarre to say you don't know these people.
1: Right, and maybe suggests that they didn't tell him the the extent of the video they had, Mm -hmm. because he's going to change the story again. So then... Over a month later, that interview with Kanipe was on June 28th. Uh, They arrested him on August 4th, and at that point, he changed the story again. He acknowledged that he was with Cottle and Duncan. He told police that he had no idea why he turned around. Uh, He said that he blacked out shortly after pulling away from the curb and had no recollection of what occurred up until the crash.
0: Yeah, and that timeline makes even less sense now because we know that Portland police had this surveillance video of Knipe just days after the killing. We found out from other records we've been able to obtain since the podcast ended that police had officers canvas and collect the video within that first week.
1: And they uh, also gathered fingerprints from the SUV and made a report on people associated with the vehicle right after the killing. We even know that police called Knipe and his uncle, who owned the SUV, and spoke to them in the days after Sean was killed.
0: It just seems very bizarre that there was this drawn out period of time between when Christopher Knipe confessed and when he was arrested.
1: Yeah, October 2019 is when this incident happens. Mm -hmm. Obviously, immediate investigation takes place. It seems to go kind of cold. Our podcast in the end of 2021 comes out like September, October, November. Right. Uh, that's when we get this new information about Kenoki comes out to the public. And right. then like eight months later, uh, in June 28th, they go back to Kanipe. Um, he admits to doing it. A month later, they talk to Kanoki. And then about like, two weeks after that, on August 4th, they make the arrest. And right. Like you said, it is a very bizarre timeline.
0: You know, the big question that I think we've been asking ourselves is why, after more than two years of appearing to do nothing in this case, did Portland police suddenly make an arrest? Like, what changed in that factor?
1: So one thing that may have changed was that the Portland police were under a lot of pressure after our podcast to put out new information about the case. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to hear how Knight's arrest came after OPB and other media outlets took the police to court to finally be transparent. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
0: Since 2021, OPB has been seeking public records in this case. The online news organization, The Intercept, has been as well. At one point, the city of Portland did release records to us as a compromise, but those records ended up being around 700 pages of mostly blacked out information. There was essentially nothing new about the case in those documents. It told us nothing about why police were taking so long to make an arrest. So both media outlets appealed to local prosecutors to try to force the information into the public domain. The hope was to get more information on what steps the police have taken to solve this case and any insights on what was stopping them from making an arrest. This was all playing out behind the scenes while we were making the podcast and even after we published our last episode. This legal back and forth played out for months. And then finally, on August 5th, the prosecutor reviewing our records request was supposed to make a final determination in the case. The day before that was supposed to happen, police then arrested Christopher Knipe. That delayed the release of the information we had been seeking. And in his eventual decision, which gave us some records, but kept many of them hidden from the public for now, the prosecutor looking at the case said, if it hadn't been for the arrest, it is likely that OPB would have won the release of even more records. Jonathan, you recently interviewed Ellen Osinak, an attorney who focuses on public records and government transparency. She talked about the weirdness around this whole timeline and the role the pressure over public records probably played here. So let's hear some of that interview.
1: How familiar are you with the OPB's legal fight to get these records?
2: My understanding is that the city in this case wanted to protect an ongoing investigation. That was their claim. Uh, And OPB's position was that the case had been cold for many years and Oregon public records law... Records belong to the public, full stop. And where the release of certain information could jeopardize an ongoing criminal investigation, the law allows some sorts of redactions.
1: There's a tendency in government, I think, to redact everything, and that's not allowed, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's not allowed. The legislature clearly made a determination that not all information, even when there isn't an ongoing investigation, should be secreted from the public.
1: Osnak said the decision on OPB's appeal to get hundreds of redacted pages unsealed was deferred when Knaip was arrested on August 4th. That decision was expected to come down the following day, and I asked her if she thought OPB's argument was likely to win.
2: I thought that OPB's arguments were compelling in that the city did not have any information that it was able or willing to provide about the investigation that had they were claiming been ongoing since 2019. And for that reason, the city bears the burden of proving that, in fact, the information should not be released. And from my review of the filings, it did not appear that the city had successfully done that.
1: Osanak told me that seeing the proverbial sausage being made, seeing the unpolished details of a file like this, it can be kind of ugly. It could be something the city wouldn't want published. Maybe there's nuance or areas that look kind of bad without explanation or context, but that doesn't mean the government can hide them from the public.
2: It is very clear that under the public records law, this No government entity should ever be claiming an exemption to avoid scrutiny or embarrassment. Um, and in fact, the public records law is designed to allow us, the public, to monitor the operations of the government. And to the extent that an investigation appears as though it was incompetent or bungled or insufficient, that's exactly the kind of interest that the public records law is designed to animate to allow the public to see whether or not the government is handling its responsibilities, its criminal investigations with diligence and rigor. So to the extent that a city might claim an exemption for the purpose of avoiding that kind of embarrassment, that's an inappropriate and unauthorized use of the Oregon Public Records law.
1: One of the last things I asked Ostenek about was the timeline of Knaip's arrest, which to us looks pretty suspect. Knaip admitted to driving the car in June and they didn't arrest him for more than a month. I asked her if there could be a reasonable explanation for that.
2: I think that's a difficult question to answer when you're outside of the black box. Um, As reporters, I think it's not a sufficient explanation from the government to say, you'll just have to trust us that there are things we can't tell you. On the other hand, There are certainly complexities to any given case, including this one, that makes it impossible to even make a reasonable inference about what the the thing that they feel is so important to keep secret. And in response to your question specifically about the timeline, it is unusual, I would say, to obtain a a suspect, someone who is clearly a target of the investigation, to obtain their statements that even partially incriminate them and then wait a significant amount of time. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. And I think it's important for the prosecution at some point to explain that delay.
1: In your experience, what role do these types of, you know, public records efforts by journalists uh, and attorneys play in forcing the government to act or to play by the rules?
2: The public records law and folks who make requests for the records that belong to the public undoubtedly place significant pressure on criminal investigations in particular And I think this case is an excellent example of that because you had two separate um, media organizations who were intensely interested in the case, recognized that the public was very interested in this case, understood the national impact of the case. And as it remained unresolved for so many years, I think that the insistence of both OPB and the other requester that they would not abandon these requests and that they they would appeal them, that they would file lawsuits. It, It undoubtedly placed pressure on the investigation. I think a recognition that records related to this case were very likely to be ordered, released in some legal proceeding clearly affected the timeline. You know, obviously I'm coming from the perspective that transparency in government affairs is beneficial— Not only because the records and the information belong to us as the public, but also because being transparent about those operations increases trust. And that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of the Oregon Supreme Court that said that access to information about police and their operations is incredibly important to increasing trust in law enforcement generally. And so... When you have an investigation into a very high-profile crime, a murder, and it remains unresolved, where there appears to be a lot of evidence that was acquired at the time of the crime, it becomes exponentially more important for the investigating agency to disclose the maximum amount of information possible.
1: I was, I mean, my last question was, you know, we've asked you a whole bunch of questions based on how we read all of this and the things that jumped out to us. You have a pretty unique perspective. What jumps out to
2: you? Hmm. I think what jumps out to me is the dates at which the city was aware that an independent decision-maker might order the disclosure of the records occurred so close in time to the arrest in this case. Um, And I think it's a fair inference that the desire for transparency and the way in which OPB and The Intercept pursued those records made action in this case much more urgent
0: dying for a fight is a co-production between something else and opb this episode was reported and produced by grant irving jonathan levinson and me ryan Hass. our editors are anna griffin and lizzie jacobs our theme is by deli girls additional music by nolan schneider and pete gk Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Egbetola. And one last message. Oregon Public Broadcasting's critical reporting on protests and movements in the Northwest are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help continue this vital coverage and analysis. Become a sustaining member of OPB with an ongoing monthly contribution. You can join us now at opb.org pod. And thank you.